Hey, if you were here last weekend with us on Easter, we had a great weekend, four services. It was packed out. It was a lot of fun. And we finished our two-year journey we'd been taking through the book of John. And where we ended was this scene where Jesus is on a beach and he has breakfast with his disciples. It's this beautiful scene where Peter is restored to ministry. Now, the very next page in your Bible, if you have a, you know, a paper one, or on the app even, if you go to like the next tab, is the, the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1. And Acts is the, uh, the, the work that the apostles did, and really it's the account of the birth of the early church. And I don't know what your impression of church is. Maybe some of you, um, you're new around here, and you, you didn't really have a background where you grew up in church, and you're just kind of checking out God, church, and the Bible for the first time. And if that's you, we are so glad that you are here. But maybe you did. Maybe you grew up in more of a, like a traditional sort of um, church. Maybe you grew up in more of a Pentecostal sort of church. And maybe you grew up in a church that took, like, really dug through the scriptures. Maybe you grew up in a church that didn't. But whatever your impression of church is, it's, it's likely a little different from what the very first people in church thought about church. Now, I had a great experience with church growing up. I love church. Um, it was my community. It was my friends, my network. Uh, we dug into the scriptures. I learned so much about the Bible, and I'm so thankful for that. It really equipped me for what I do here today, and I love some of the events that we did. Potlucks. Anybody remember when churches used to do potlucks all the time? So the burrito thing, that's kind of close. Uh, we'll enjoy that. Uh, I remember this one time we had a, a hymn sing now, we sing songs here, and the words are up on the screen. Back in the day, uh, anybody remember a hymnal? You had a book with, like, 500 pages and all these different songs in them. And you, you'd, like, so the hymn sing, we did this Sunday night thing, and the thing that got us there was it was a hymn sing plus a pie social. And so as a 12-year-old kid, you're all about one of those, and guess which one it is? The pie, right? So anyway, we'd go to this hymn sing, and, and the way it worked was somebody just, like, request their favorite hymn, hey, and they'd call it out, hey, how about let's sing song number 327, they'd turn to it, and we'd all sing it together, it'd be somebody up on the piano, and somebody leading the songs like this, if you grew up in a church like that, you, you, you remember that back in the day, and, uh, and so we were singing, and we were singing, and we were singing, and I'm thinking about pie, and I'm next to my best friend, he's the pastor's son, and, uh, and so we are a little mischievous, and so I thought, I want to hurry this little thing up so we can get to the pie. And so I requested this one hymn, uh, I don't know, it was like hymn number 555. It was the sevenfold amen. And so the song leader uh, looks it up, just like, five, five, five. They look it up, and he's like, oh, the sevenfold amen. I get the point. Let's get to the pie. And it worked. We, like... We wrapped up the hymns, and, and we ate pie. Now I got in trouble because I was best friends with the, the pastor's kid because I, I, I was the early, uh, like, I got in trouble. I had to go apologize to the song leader before I got to eat my piece of pie. Um, but nonetheless, it was successful. <laughs> so I don't know where you at, what your impression of church was growing up and what your experience was, but like I said, it's likely significantly different from what the first church people thought or experienced when they thought about church, they didn't think about hymns or pie or, or buildings. 
or rows or pews or robes or bands or videos or liturgies. When the first church, when, when the church first began, it was a gathering of people who came together around a central message and around a central mission. And the message was this, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And that you can have life by believing in his name. And the mission was to take this message to the ends of the world. And the mission was propelled by the empowerment of God working and moving mightily in their very midst. And if you read the account of the church, the early church in Acts, uh, you can't help but notice that it began very outwardly focused, very focused on, on both loving each other inwardly, but then carrying that mission outwardly and, and the role that the Holy Spirit played in that. You can't miss it if you read through the New Testament. But before long, the church began to drift from an outward focus from the mission and from the empowerment of God, the active evidence of God in their midst. And what's interesting is over the next thousand years, after a couple hundred years went by and, and the church became the official church of the Roman Empire, something shifted. And it began to act completely different than the movement that Jesus originally started. It became building-focused, and it became power-focused, and not the power of God-focused, but the power of the leaders-focused. And it drifted very quickly from what it was in the beginning. And one thing that contributed to this shift was a, uh, a bad translation of one little word. Now, in Matthew chapter 16, we find the very first reference to the church in the New Testament. Jesus was with his disciples, and uh, they're, they're gathered on this, on this hillside by a little town called Capernaum, and uh, they're, they're up on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, and he asks the guys, uh, he gathers them up, and he says, hey, what's the word on the street? Who do people say I am? And some said, yeah, they say you're like a reincarnated John the Baptist, or maybe Elijah, like a prophet. And he said, well, who do you say I am? And Peter, we talked about this last week, Peter threw up his hand and boldly said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. You're the anointed one, the one we've been waiting for, the son of God. And Jesus goes, blessed are you, Peter. And then he makes this statement, and it's a powerful statement. He says this, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. He makes this prediction. 2,000 years ago, on a hot, dusty hillside with a little group of guys gathered around him that he is going to build this church and nothing is going to stand against it. Hell won't stop it. Now, what's amazing is we're here today as evidence that his prediction came true, aren't we? And I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about how remarkable that is. Um, sociologists have studied this, and, and they studied how did the church emerge from, from the first century and from all the persecution, and it's a mystery to them. They don't understand it, because apart from the fact that these guys had actually witnessed Jesus risen from the dead and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to take that message out into the nations, guess what? There's no good explanation for it. It's, it's a mystery, and, and people who've studied this, scholars, they admit that. There's not a good explanation, explanation for it. Now, he makes this bold translation, I'm going to build my church, and we're here as evidence 2,000 years later that he was right. Now, 
The, the Greek term translated church in the Greek New Testament, the original language this was written in, is this. It's ekklesia. Ekklesia. What this word means is it means an assembly or a gathering. So he said, I will build my ecclesia, my assembling, my, my gathering, my movement, and nothing's going to stop. Nothing's going to stand against it. Now, that's, it's a little bit different than the English word church. We get the English word church, which I'm sure some of you got up um, this, this morning, and here's what you were thinking. You were telling your kids, hurry up, get ready. We got to get to church. Some of you were might, may, maybe fighting with your kids a little on the way. You're kind of frustrated. No, not you guys. You're too spiritual. <laughs> we got to get to church. Some of you said that. We're going to church. And here's where this little word church comes from, that we don't really think about it. We just grew up with it. It, it actually started around the word, around the time, 300 AD. And there was a, uh, another Greek term that meant the house or of the Lord. And this term was picked up and, and adapted by a uh, Germanic tribe, tribe, the Goths, around 300 AD. And they had a word called kirche, which literally meant the Lord's house. Now, phonetically, in English, it sounds a lot like church, but it's pronounced different in German. And what happened is the church ended up, the uh, the church ended up taking that word and sliding it in here as a transliteration of this word when it's a completely different word. And what this ended up doing was it created some really bad theology in the church because the church ended up becoming a place rather than an empowered movement or a gathering. It was tamed. It became controlled by the people who controlled the building. Now, I'm thankful we have buildings and parking lots, that makes the gathering a little easier, doesn't it? Especially in Colorado where it gets cold in the winter. I'm happy for that. But here's what happened. Instead of an expectation of the active presence of God in their midst, it became a list of rituals controlled by an oftentimes corrupt group of leaders. And this time was a very dark time in church history. It's known as the Dark Ages. And there were some things that happened during this time that I'm convinced genuinely grieved the heart of God. And then in the year 1517, something happened. A new movement began. There was a monk, a Catholic monk named Martin Luther. And he began to see all these things in Scripture as he read Scripture um, that didn't match up to what the official teaching of the church was. Like they would do indulgences where you'd literally buy forgiveness. You would pay for and buy forgiveness. Uh, and salvation was, was earned by working really hard for it and buying indulgences and these different things. And he had this realization that the scriptures are clear that salvation is actually by faith alone. You don't earn it. It's by trusting in Jesus that you receive, you receive salvation. And he had this observation that instead of like some, some spokesman for God being the authority on what God says, actually when you read the scriptures, he says it's the word of God that's the authority on what God says. We should live our lives. These are two big thoughts. One is um, solo scriptura, that scripture is the authority by which we base our decisions about not only who God reveals himself to be, but how we live our lives in relation to him, that we search the scriptures, like this group early called the Bereans did. They searched the scriptures to see if what even Paul was teaching them was true. 
And the other one was solo fida, so faith alone that brings salvation. And, and so Luther argued against these things. In fact, when I was, uh, I think, 12 or 13, I got to go to Wittenberg, Germany, and see the very doors where Luther um, nailed what are called his 95 theses, which was like, hey, come argue with me about these 95 things, 95 things, because I think the church as a whole has it wrong. And this began a movement called the Protestant Reformation, which launched basically every other church um, on the face of the earth, except for the Eastern Orthodox and the, and the Catholic Church all around the world today. Huge population of Christians that saw things differently, and this is where it, it, it began. And during that same period of time, there was another scholar. His name was William Tyndale, and he did something very bold. He's often referred to as the father of the English Bible because what he did is he took the Bible and he translated the Bible in English from the original Greek and Hebrew texts. All they had at this point was the Bible in the Latin Vulgate text, and he went back to the original text, and he began to translate the Bible into the common language, and this drove people crazy. They hated it. In fact, here's what he said. He said, if God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow to know more of the scriptures than thou dost. Speaking to religious leaders. Like, I want the scriptures to be so common that the common person actually understands them. And he was persecuted by the church for this. In, in 1524, he had to flee from England to Germany where, the, where he published his first version of the New Testament. And he smuggled it back into England. And, and he continued translating the Bible until a friend betrayed him and he was hung and burnt at the stake in 1536. This picture comes from, or the picture that you saw was from uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs famous account of people that died for their faith. And one of the things he did that drove the church leaders absolutely crazy was that he translated this little word ecclesia as congregation rather than church. It moved the focus from a power structure and from a building to a gathering, to a movement. And, and that was a very important distinction, and that brings us back to Acts where just after Jesus' resurrection, he prepares his disciples for the launch of this movement that he predicted. And here's how the book of Acts starts. The book of Acts is written by Luke, and Luke is a physician. He's a scholar, and he carefully studies everything. And after the resurrection, Luke tells us that Jesus actually appeared to his disciples, and he opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. Because there's some 300 prophecies written in the, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, all about Jesus. And he reveals all of that to them, that, that the Messiah had to come suffer and, and die and then rise again, something they couldn't see, they didn't expect. And he says, and forgiveness, repentance, and forgiveness of sins will be preached in Jesus' name, in his name, to all the nations beginning here at Jerusalem. And he says, you're going to be my witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father promised. What does his father promise? Well, Jesus, we saw it a, a couple months ago in John, the Holy Spirit. He said, if I leave, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And he told them, but I want you to stay in the, in, in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. And so now in, in the second book that Luke writes is, is Acts, and here's how he starts it. He says this, In my former book, Theophilus, 
I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He says, I want you to wait till you receive power. And it says, so when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're thinking, okay, you died, you rose again, you keep talking about the kingdom of God. Is like now the time that, that we're going to be a superpower status. And he doesn't answer their question. Here. Remember, he keeps talking about the kingdom of God and how the kingdom of God is different than they, they thought or expected, that the kingdom of God, when it comes, um, it, when it is initiated in this world, it's going to be like a mustard seed. It's going to grow and grow and grow. And birds, like all these different nations are going to be included in this thing that God is doing all around the world. And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the date the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And I think they're thinking, power, awesome. What do we do with it? This is exciting. What are we going to do? And he says, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. A witness, he says, you're going to be one who testifies to something, affirms something. You will testify and proclaim me, the risen Messiah, that I'm alive. Remember, we had breakfast on the beach, <laughs> and it changed everything for you. You knew I was dead, and now I'm raised, risen from the dead. You're going to be witnesses of that, but you're not just going to be witnesses in your own power. You're going to receive power to take this message, and you're going to go all around the world, starting right here, home, like home turf, Jerusalem. It's going to start here. Then you're going to go out sort of into the region, Judea. You're going to like venture up into Delta County and, and tell them up there too. And then you're going to go uh, to a place you really don't like. You're going, to, you're going to have to go to Aspen, guys. And they, they didn't like the Samaritans uh, much. But you're going to go and you're going to share the gospel with them too and then to the uttermost ends of the earth. And they're like, Okay, I, I don't really get it. And then to really blow their minds, here's, here's what happens next. He gives them this mission. Uh, he tells them in Matthew at another spot, you're going to make disciples. You're going to go into all nations and make disciples, other followers of me. This is your commission, to take your life as you follow me and then replicate it into others and teach them to do all that I've commanded you to do. All this I've been teaching over the last three years. You're going to replicate followers of me. That's your mission. And I'm giving you the mission. I'm going to be with you till the end of the age. And I think they're thinking he's going to stick around. But here's what happens next. Verse 9, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid, them, hid him from their sight. And it says they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when, two, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood behind them. These are angels. I think this is so funny because I think they're like going, all right, we're going to like be your witnesses. And then he's like gone and they're like, where'd he go? What's going on here? 
And, and Jesus, uh, this is not in the Bible. I'm just making this up because here's what I see. Like, you know, Jesus goes up and he's like, are they still down there? I, I gave him a job. And they're like just sitting there staring up. And he's, he's like, come on, angel. You, you guys got to go, go down. Talk to him. And so these two angels are behind them. And they say, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking up into the sky? Like, didn't he give you a job to do? Um, the same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. There will be a day where Jesus returns. That's the great hope we have. He is returning. He is returning. We will spend eternity with him. And so they finally get it, and they went back to Jerusalem. And they waited for about two weeks. They didn't just wait, but they prayed they were in one room together, praying and, and waiting on God. And then Luke, who carefully researched all this, um, he tells us it was the apostles and some of the women that followed Jesus, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the, and the, the brothers of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, um, and the uh, brothers of Jesus that were there in this place. And then this very special day came. On the day of Pentecost which is a Jewish feast day called Shavuot. Um, this was a commemoration of when the, when the law was originally given at Mount Sinai. It was a day of repentance and fasting. It was a day that was very powerful in their history and very significant because Paul talks about a, a new law given, which is what the law of the Spirit. On this very day, at, on the day of Pentecost, um, when the city of Jerusalem would have been full of pilgrims from all converts and Jewish people from all the different nations, they were spread around the world. The Holy Spirit came and he fell on the men and the women in the room and filled them. And the evidence of that, there was this amazing experience where they, they could all speak in the languages of all these people who had come from these various corners and regions of the world, and they heard these guys, and they're like, how in the world can this be? How can it be that these Galileans are speaking our language? And Luke actually lists off 14 different groups from around the world that heard the gospel, the message of Jesus preached in their very own language by these dudes that didn't speak it. And their minds are absolutely blown. And just a quick teaser, because I don't have time to get to this. We're going to dig into this passage in Acts 2 a little bit more in this series. And there's some really cool stuff. And it ties back, like, all the way back to the Tower of Babel and God going after some nations. And that's all I can give you. It's just a teaser. But don't miss it, okay? Because it's really cool. But here's, here's the big idea, is that this... Movement. Here's the thing that the disciples really begin to understand. They didn't get this before. This movement, this gathering, this church, this ecclesia. It was a movement that Jesus had started, and it wasn't just for, for this small little nation in the Middle East. It was for the entire world. And God was doing a new thing, inviting the nations into this movement. And they had a mission to carry this gospel to the ends of the earth. And in order to accomplish that, they had to wait on the Holy Spirit. They had to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, go back to where we started for just a second. Before the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s began, I, as you look at church history, I believe there's two things that were really lost to the people to the average person. 
that was in the church that maybe believed in Jesus but didn't have a lot of information. Remember, remember that they didn't even have the Bible in their own language, right? One of them that was lost was the Word of God. You see in, in the book of Acts, believers that knew the Scriptures, Timothy, that was taught the Scriptures from an early age. So we had the, the, our Old Testament, all the Hebrew Scriptures, which pointed towards Jesus. And then, you know, the accounts of Jesus that were being written by the apostles and the, and the epistles, the letters of Paul, um, that were later all bound together in what we have as our, as our Bible. So they had the Scriptures, but the Scriptures were lost to the average person. Only the priests had it. It was in Latin. Only the priests could read it. They didn't, it wasn't in their own language. They'd lost this idea of sola scriptura, that scripture is the authority, that God reveals himself to us in scripture. And it's not the words of a human or, or a pope. They've lost the, the idea of sola fida, the salvation through faith in Jesus alone. But in the great, in the Reformation, that was returned to the church of God the accessibility of the scriptures. And the other thing that came out of this as the people begin to dig into the scriptures was a return um, to the active presence of God in their midst. If you go back and read the history of some of the great awakenings and things that began to happen very shortly after the Protestant Reformation, that the Holy Spirit began to move powerfully in their midst and many people began to, again, come into relationship and understand and have a saving faith in Jesus and they experienced the power of God in their midst. In fact, our uh, church church, uh, heritage traces back... um, sort of uh, roundabout to the Quakers who came out of this time of the, of the Protestant Reformation, the Great Awakenings. And they would have these meetings where the presence of God was so thick in their midst that they would actually quake. That's how they got their names. And they began to experience the active presence of God in their midst during these Great Awakenings and during these revivals that swept around the world. Now here at Life Community... We have a value. Here, here's what this value is. Biblically serious, responsive to the Holy Spirit. We talk about this a bit. It really informs a lot of what we do. If you've been coming any length of time, you know we're really, we're really um, committed to teaching the Scriptures and doing our best to teach the whole counsel of Scripture and, and doing our best to understand what is God communicating and revealing to us about himself and then about how we live our lives in Scripture. But we don't want to just stop with being like head people that think about it. We want to experience the Holy Spirit, and we want to respond. We want to live a life that's responsive to the Holy Spirit in our lives. We want to be biblically serious, and we want to be listening to the voice and the leading of the Holy Spirit as he prompts us to step out and continue the mission Jesus has given us to take his love, to take the gospel to those in our circles to our next-door neighbors, to our coworkers, to our family, to our friends, to share the gospel, to share the good news, to, to encourage each other and lift each other up and build each other up. And so really what today is, just to give you a heads up, today is just an introduction to the topic, okay? For the next five or six weeks, we're going to begin digging into this, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to start with Scripture, and we're going to talk about what, what the Scripture says about the Holy Spirit. And from there, we're going to go on and talk about some of our experiences and experiences of people I know and some different things. And we're going to try to dig into what, what does God say in his word about the Holy Spirit and what might he want us to experience. Now, before we get there, I just want to acknowledge um, the elephant in the room. 
And that is this, that whenever we, we dive into the topic of the Holy Spirit and, and sometimes the work of the Holy Spirit or gifts of the Holy Spirit that we see in Scripture, um, people have different feelings toward that. For some, it's like, whoo! They all came last night at 6. They were more excited. You guys are a little quiet, right? You're the, I've been up since 4 a.m. studying the Bible diligently, crew, in here. <laughs> and others are like, mm, you feel a little bit like, I don't know, I'm a little nervous about that. See, for some of you, you have a, maybe you've been around groups or you've had experiences that um, you didn't understand or maybe that were weird or maybe that were just felt fake, like the whole situation felt fake, or you watched, you know, a late night um, televangelist or something, you're like, really? And what about your private jet? Um, and, and, and you've grouped all this kind of together with that, and it just sort of, it, it scares you, it weirds you out. In fact, we have a, we have a, uh, a commitment we do our best around here to do our services in such a way that you can invite your family and friends and it's not going to weird them out. Okay? That's like really intentional. We're intentional about that. And for some of you, you just, you've had an experience where you were just weirded out. Others, you've had an experience where maybe like you saw things that other people were experiencing and they leaned into God in prayer and, and had maybe a powerful experience or experienced maybe a healing or something in their life and you desperately wanted that, but you, you just hadn't ever experienced it. And because of that, there's, a, there's been something that sort of a hurt. And you just sort of back away and hold all these things at arm's length. You don't really know about it. We have a value around here that we express this way. We're lifelong learners. And here's what that means. A couple different things. Number one, it means we're always learning and growing in our knowledge of God. If you think you got it all figured out, <laughs> you think wrong. If you haven't learned anything new lately, there's a good chance you're not learning. Because as we learn and as we grow, we, we, certain things, we, we change. But the other thing this means is, is we, we tend to hold certain things like sola fide, like faith in God for salvation, what Jesus was so clearly stated about the gospel, um, we hold tightly to that. But there's other things that we would consider, um, other, other things in scripture that are a little more vague and that different denominations maybe disagree on and stuff, that we're like, you know what, it's okay um, if, if you're not there yet or if you're over here, it's okay, we can all do fellowship and love each other. Some of these things, you know, predestination, um, not predestination, or if you know that whole argument, Bible translations, you think this one, I think this one. Some in time stuff, you think this, somebody else thinks this. What we recognize is people who love God are coming to some different sort of um, opinions and viewpoints, and we're going to spend eternity together, so we think we should be able to love each other and, and spend some time together now. So some things we hold kind of loosely but also, what I want to encourage you in your heart, and here's where, I, here's where I'm at, guys, that we're committed to faithfully, to the best of our ability, digging into the scriptures and understanding it. And also, also, I want to experience all that God has for me. Everything that's from him, 
I want to, that he, he wants for me in this journey of following him and in this journey of loving other people and caring about other people and sharing the gospel and living this life, I want to experience it. I want to know him more. I want to go deeper, not just in my head knowledge, but I want to go deeper in connecting with him and experiencing him in prayer in in those moments where where his presence is, is so real in my life. I want that for myself. I, I, I had this experience, and maybe some of you um, have, have been there. I, I grew up in a church that um, believed God is alive and active, and yet definitely shied away from anything that felt a little weird. And so I went off and did missions work all around the world, and I remember this one experience um, where I was pretty young and just kind of coming into this, and there was this guy praying for people, and and like different stuff was happening that was weirding me out and like people were falling over and some different things. And I remember because he was coming around praying for people and he was coming up to, to, to me. <laughs> and I literally, I braced myself. <laughs> and I said, okay, God, if this is you, bring it on. But if not, I'm not going down because some dude's pushing on my forehead. Ain't gonna happen. And you know what? Um, I didn't experience anything dramatic that night. But I've had some other powerful and profound experiences with God's presence that have shaped me and shaped the direction of my life. I'll share some of those as we go through this series. And the heart, my heart is just, God, I, if it's you, I want to experience it. I want to know you more. But I want to be grounded. I want to hear your voice, but I want that to be grounded in your word because that's how we go back and we, and we can tell if what we're experiencing is of him. It's knowing our faith is rooted and anchored in his word. It's biblically serious. It's responsive to the Holy Spirit. Now, for some of you, the Holy Spirit, maybe if you're new to church, the conversation about the Holy Spirit just feels like you're like, I don't really even know if I know who the Holy Spirit is. This wasn't helped because in, in like the 1700s version of the Bible, like the, the original like King James version, he was referred to as the Holy Ghost, which for us a couple hundred years later means a whole different thing. And so for some, you're like, is he like a ghost? In fact, let me show you a quick video. This is a video from a program called Alpha that really like works with people who are new in their faith. And they went around and interviewed people about who the Holy Spirit is. Check this out. Maybe some of you can identify. In fact, maybe there's some of you that kind of feel the same way. I'm like, I don't really know. I mean, I know it's in the Bible, somehow connected to God, but I'm not sure. 
You know, it's interesting in the Great Commission, when Jesus commissions and gives us our mission for life to go and make disciples, teach them to obey what he's commanded. And, and what else are we supposed to do? Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, you may never have thought of this, but the, if the Holy Spirit were not God, that would be blasphemous, wouldn't it? Not to mention Jesus, of course. We just preached through John. If you missed that, man, it couldn't be more clear that Jesus claims to be God in the flesh. There's a doctrine in the Christian faith, a teaching that we've, we've come to understand is, as, the, as the founders of the early movement really started digging into Scripture and God began to reveal to them what was somewhat veiled in the Old Testament. It's called the Trinity, the three in one. So the one dude up there got it right, the Trinity, the three in one. <laughs> and here, here's what that means. Three, God is three persons. This is, um, this is from a guy named Wayne Grudem who wrote a book. Uh, we'll put this book up real quick. Because if you really want to dig into this, let me just say, if you think you have your mind totally wrapped around the, the Trinity, um, I'm saying you probably don't. You, you can get there a little bit if you want to study it by, by grabbing this book. There's a, it's 1,700 pages. Uh, but there's a... A section called the Doctrine of the Trinity that'll really help. Like, if you're if you're really like to dig into theology and stuff, grab this book and, and read it. Um, it'll really open your mind. But here's what he, he here's what he tells us: God is three persons, and he's distilling down in three easy statements that really aren't very easy once you start thinking about it. God is three persons. Each person is fully God, and there is one God. There's one being who is God, and yet three persons. And he goes on in this book to show how, how the early heresies in the church where people walked away from um, scriptural faith in, in God came because they, they were trying to dumb down this concept. So either it's like, well, there's one God, but it's just he expresses himself in three different modes or there's three different gods. That's polytheism. But here's what you see when you go back to the scriptures, all the way back to the first ch chapter of the Bible, there is community in the unity of God. So he says, uh, let us create man in our image. There's community in, in, in the unity of God from the very beginning. In fact, even in ancient Judaism, up until the time where the resurrection and the message of Jesus started spreading like wildfire, wildfire, they believed in the Godhead, this concept. You can go back and look at it. That changed when all of a sudden um, the message of Jesus became a no-no in their culture, and that changed, that shifted. But in the ancient writings, they understood that when, when God says, behold, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, that's the most famous prayer. All the way back to Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, the Lord is one. But they understood there was a there was a Godhead of the one. And you begin to really start thinking about this, and, and it's really difficult to wrap your mind around. That's probably because we are trying to wrap our mind around a, a God who created a universe so vast that even with modern science, we really can't comprehend it. We just discover it gets bigger and bigger. And yet we're told he holds that in the palm of his hand. 
And then the littler and littler you go, man, the weirder and weirder it gets, and they don't really understand it. You, like, start reading about, you know, like, string theory and stuff. It goes way down. And we're told in the Scripture, he holds it together. He created it. And so in the person of God, there's, there's something that should blow your mind a little bit. And we have, like, illustrations that kind of help us. Like, well, it's like water, you know, H2O, or it's like an egg. And they're maybe helpful, but they're, again, they're not. Because, like, you have an egg, but the shell isn't fully God. All-powerful, all-knowing, omnipresent, right? And what we understand about the Trinity is each person is fully God. And yet there's three persons. And yet they're one. There's one God. It's like, oh, that blows my mind. That's the point. He's God. He's God. And so what you see in the scriptures is God the Father sends God the Son to the earth to die for us. And then before Jesus departs, he says actually something that's very hard for us. He says, um, I, I think it's hard for me to wrap my mind around. He says, it's actually better for you that I go away. Because if I do, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And I think the guys were thinking, really, Jesus? I kind of just want to hang out like right next to you. And I think I feel that way sometimes. Maybe you do as well. But he says, no, actually, it's better for you. Because all throughout the Old Testament, you see this concept of the Holy Spirit who would um, come upon people for a task or for a mission, but it was temporary and it was very selective who the Holy Spirit would come upon. But this amazing thing happens in, in the New Testament on the day of Pentecost is Jesus says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and he will dwell within everyone who believes and trusts in me. He will indwell you and he will empower you. That's why he says this is better. You need him. You cannot fulfill his mission for you in life. You cannot experience faith apart from him and life the way he intended it apart from him. And so as we go through this series, and we're going to see some amazing things, and we're going to dig into some passages, and we're going to talk about some of the ways that God works, and some of the things we see in Scripture about the Holy Spirit, things like this, that the fact that we see in Corinthians that it's the Spirit who actually baptizes us into the body of Christ, that it's the Holy Spirit, um, like what we do in water baptism is symbolic of what actually happens in the Spirit, as he brings us to new life. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, that it's the Holy Spirit that actually makes us part of God's family and gives us the ability to cry out to, to our Father, Father God, literally Daddy God in Scripture. Like he creates an intimate relationship with God in us. He indwells us. He's the seal of our salvation. We see that in Ephesians. He fills us. He empowers us. You see that also in Ephesians and, and all over. And I've got a really cool story from a friend on that. He produces good fruit in our life. A big, a big uh, uh, word called sanctification. He brings transformation in our life. We see that in Galatians. He produces fruit like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control that helps us in our life as we follow Jesus and reach out to others. He gives spiritual gifts. 
giftings that are, that are from him. In fact, we, we see he's referred to as the gift of God. And then he gives other gifts, some of which feel a lot just like natural abilities or things, but they're actually from him. Others that are, feel overtly supernatural as you begin to, to read and dig into them. Many things that he does, but the point is, the point is, you need to learn to walk with the Holy Spirit in your life to accomplish what God wants you to accomplish. And on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls on his people. And, and after this, Peter gets up and he preaches a sermon that is so powerful. Remember, this is a guy we talked about last week who denied Jesus in front of like a middle school girl, terrified for his own life. He gets up in front of a crowd and listen to the boldness he has. I'm going to read you just a few verses of this sermon and then we're going to end. He says this, people of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. In other words, this was all part of his plan. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. You put him to death. It's a little bold, isn't it? But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep his hold on him. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. We saw it. We had breakfast with him on the beach exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and poured out what you now see and hear. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent. You have been walking away from him. You have been persecuting him. Turn and run toward him. Change your heart. Change your mind. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. When you turn towards him, when you embrace Jesus, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. This was a worldwide thing. This was for you all. You and I are in this all. And this movement launched, and it was powerful, and you and I are here 2,000 years later as a witness of this. And listen, Here's what happened. It says, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. <laughs> That's powerful. 3,000. As Peter gets up and preaches this sermon with great boldness, where he had so much fear before, what changed? He was empowered and filled with the Holy Spirit. Gave him the ability to do this. And the gathering, the movement of Jesus 
the message was spread as the Holy Spirit empowered the early followers of Jesus to take this message around the world. Would you stand? Here's how we're going to close today. I just want to encourage you as we go through this. Over the next five or six weeks leading up to Pentecost, which is at the end of May, that Pentecost Sunday, I want to encourage you to have a heart for God. Maybe you've grown in your heart just sort of numb to him. Maybe you know a bunch of stuff in your head, but it hasn't really connected to your heart in a long time. I want to encourage you to lean in and become a responsive follower of Jesus. That you would respond to his voice. You would respond to the Holy Spirit. I want to encourage you. And my heart is this. God, I want to experience everything that is from you. I want to know you more in my life. I want to be closer to you. I want to walk more closely with you. I want to be more attentive to your voice so that when you lead me to share something with someone else, I'll do that. When you want to give me something, I'm like, where'd that come from? I, I, I don't know. I think maybe this is, is God. And it actually speaks directly to somebody's life when you prompt me. I want to do that. I want to know your love, your grace more. Are you living a life that's responsive to the Holy Spirit? You know, you can, you can push back. You can resist the Holy Spirit. We see that throughout Scripture. You can grieve the Holy Spirit in areas of your life where maybe he keeps convicting about an area and you keep pushing him away. The difference between conviction is in, in guilt, condemnation is this. Condemnation is you'll never be good enough. You're a failure. You're a loser. Conviction is, hey, come on home, child. Come back. Let's change this. Be transformed into the image of God. There's forgiveness. There's grace. Let me pray for you. And as we close, if, if, uh, let's just bow our heads and close our eyes. Let me say, if that's your heart, that as we go through this and just this week and as we go through these next few weeks, that your heart is, God, I want to know you more. I want to experience everything you have for me that's from you. Maybe you want to just stretch out your hands right now. It's nothing weird. It's just a, a posture of receiving from him. And just let me pray for you. Father, thank you that you didn't leave us alone, that you filled us and indwell us by your spirit. We want to know you. We want to know your word and understand. But we don't want it to stop in our heads. We want it to work itself out in our lives as we are responsive to you and your spirit, as you fill us and empower us to do the mission you've called us to do in this world every day. We love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.